Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. This week, we're coming to you from beautiful Portland, Oregon, where the president's weird and probably unlawful quasi-army appears to have left, and where, shortly after the immigration review arrived, the Government Accountability Office, Congress's independent investigative arm, determined that DHS's ostensibly temporary but clearly permanent and non-Senate-confirmed heads, Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli, are not legally in their positions. Coincidence? I think not. We've got eight cases for you this week, including four from the Ninth Circuit, running the gamut of asylum, including some great law on reasonable relocation, CIMTs, aggravated felonies, motions to terminate, and even admission issues. It's also my fiancé Kim's last week as host, so please write us an email and let Kim know how she did. Now, on to the first case, starting with all four Ninth Circuit cases. Coming to you from the road as we drive to Crater Lake, Oregon, this will be the last episode, hopefully, that will be on the road. Our first Ninth Circuit case out of four is Akasang v. Barr, published on August 14, 2020. This is a case primarily about asylum and the reasonableness of relocation. Here's the factual background. Ms. Akasang fled her Cameroonian village after she was ordered to marry the village chieftain, known as the Fawn. For more than a year, she lived in hiding, moving from place to place to avoid capture. The Fawn's envoys pursued Ms. Akasang and threatened punishment to anyone who harbored her. Ms. Akasang ultimately made her way to the United States where she applied for asylum, withholding of removal, and protection under the Convention Against Torture. The IJ and then the BIA denied the applications because she did not show that she would be harmed upon return to Cameroon on account of her membership in the Asserted Particular Social Group, or PSG, of, quote, women resistant to forced marriage proposals, end quote, because the group was not socially distinct and that in any event, she could relocate to an area other than the small town where the fawn lives. The BIA denied cat protection for similar reasons related to relocation. The Ninth Circuit disagreed on the issue of relocation, noting that the asylum and cat regulations preclude relief and protection only where relocation is reasonable, and stating, quote, It hardly seems reasonable to expect one facing persecution or torture to become a fugitive and live in hiding, end quote, in her home country. As to whether Ms. Akasung feared harm on account of a protected ground, in this case her membership in a PSG, the Ninth Circuit held that the records showed that indeed the group Women Resistant to Forced Marriage Proposals are recognized as distinct in Cameroon. Finally, addressing the Torture Convention or Cat Protection claim, 
the Ninth Circuit held that the record showed that the Cameroon government was willfully blind to the Fon's actions and that this will satisfy the government actor prong for CAT. So the case was sent back to the agency. Congratulations, Ms. Akasang. Here are three excellent sets of quotes from Kevin to you. So here's another good quote for relocation. A non-citizen's, quote, ability to elude her pursuers at great effort and risk does not establish that she would be able to avoid persecution or torture by relocating, end quote, within her country. Accordingly, the standard used by the Ninth Circuit in this case would appear applicable to all countries facing internal instability, such as the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, because the term, quote, relocate most naturally refers to resettlement or a change of residence, not the unstable situation of one who must always be ready to flee, end quote. And as the Ninth Circuit notes, this standard coincides with that used in at least the Fourth, Fifth, and Seventh Circuits. Continuing on this theme, a similar reasoning applies to torture convention protection because, quote, when an applicant flees and goes into hiding to avoid torture, it can hardly be said that the absence of past harm negates the likelihood of future harm, end quote. And finally, this case can be cited for the proposition that whenever a persecutor or torturer is an applicant's spouse, there exists a high likelihood of future persecution and torture because, quote, rape can constitute torture, end quote, and rape, including marital rape, quote, is an obvious concomitant of a forced marriage, end quote. And that is Akasung v. Barr. Moving on to our second Ninth Circuit case, we've got Syed v. Barr, published on August 12, 2020. This one involves a crime involving moral turpitude, or CIMT, a case with Judge Owens on the panel, but this time, without mention of the analysis being dumb, dumb, dumb. Mr. Syed is a lawful permanent resident, or LPR. An IJ and then the BIA found him removable for having been convicted of one CIMT within five years of receiving LPR status. Under our immigration laws, LPRs are not removable for a conviction for only one CIMT unless the CIMT is committed within five years of receiving LPR status. That's what happened here. The crime deemed a CIMT is California Penal Code Section 288.3a communicating with a child, knowing or reasonably knowing that the individual is a child, with the intent to commit one of 15 enumerated offenses. One of the offenses an offender can intend to commit are all offenses listed at California Penal Code Section 288, which includes committing lewd or lascivious acts upon the child. The BIA held that Mr. Syed communicated with the child with the intent to commit a Section 288 offense, and that doing so is a CIMT. The Ninth Circuit agreed, holding that, every way to commit the offense is, quote, vile, base, or depraved, and violates accepted moral standards, end quote, which is the definition of a CIMT. At this point, that sounds pretty simple, but it's actually a bit more complicated. For example, one of the other 15 enumerated offenses an offender can intend to commit upon a child is kidnapping under California Penal Code Section 207, 
which, in the strange world of immigration, the Ninth Circuit has previously held, is not a CIMT, at least relating to adults. So California Penal Code Section 288.3a would appear not to categorically constitute a CIMT because at least some of the ways it can be committed, remember there are 15 enumerated offenses, may not be turpitudinous. However, the Ninth Circuit concluded, based on a review of the jury instructions, that California Penal Code Section 288.3a is divisible, as to the offense the defendant intends to commit upon a child. Because the statute is divisible, the court is not limited to the categorical approach and can use the modified categorical approach to examine Mr. Syed's conviction documents, which clearly showed that he intended to commit a Section 288 offense. In the end, the Ninth Circuit held that intending to commit a Section 288 offense is a CIMT, stating that, quote, communicating with a minor for immoral purposes of a sexual nature constitutes a morally turpitudinous crime, end quote, and analogized to a Washington crime it deemed a CIMT in Morales v. Gonzalez in 2007. So, Mr. Syed is removable. Here's Kevin with some observations. Although the Ninth Circuit stated that its decision followed from the Washington statute at issue in Morales, it also stated that, quote, more importantly, the California law prohibits communicating with a child while knowing or having reason to believe the victim is a child, end quote. So a similar statute that doesn't require knowledge or recklessness as to the victim's age may not be a CIMT and as the Ninth Circuit recognizes, would instead be governed by its 2018 decision, Menendez v. Whitaker. Now, the Menendez decision actually involved a Section 288 offense, Section 288c1 to be specific, and held that Section 288c1 is not a CIMT, because under Section 288c1, a defendant can be convicted even if he made a good-faith and honest mistake about the victim's age. So returning to this case, recall, the crime at issue is communicating with a child with the intent to commit a Section 288 offense. So it would appear at first blush that Mr. Syed's crime would not be a CIMT under Menendez, because not all of Section 288's offenses are CIMTs. The Ninth Circuit, however, distinguished Menendez because Mr. Syed's crime, communicating with a child with the intent to commit a Section 288 offense, requires that the defendant know or reasonably know that the victim is a child. So the good faith mistake as to the child's age does not exist in this case. That's the difference. And finally, another shot at matter of Reyes, the Attorney General's aggravated felony decision from two weeks ago. And shots at matter of Reyes may become a weekly occurrence on the podcast. Remember, in matter of Reyes, to the extent the Attorney General relied on any circuit case law, he relied on a Ninth Circuit case from 12 years ago. But in this case, Syed, the Ninth Circuit states, quote, The categorical approach is best understood as a task of statutory matching. We ask whether the statutory elements of the crime of conviction match the elements of the generic offense, which serves as the basis for removal, end quote. So again, unlike as the Attorney General would like in Reyes, the categorical approach requires a comparison to a generic offense, not to multiple generic aggravated felony offenses. And that is Syed V. Barr.
Next up is Gomez Fernandez v. Barr, published on August 13, 2020. This case is about the aggravated felony murder definition at INA section 101A43A. And just a heads up, this discussion involves sensitive concepts. Mr. Gomez Fernandez is an LPR and was convicted of murder under California Penal Code Section 187A. He was charged as removable as an LPR convicted of an aggravated felony. Specifically, murder is defined at INA Section 101A43A. Recall that to determine whether an LPR is removable for having been convicted of an aggravated felony, the court applies the categorical approach, which requires a comparison of the elements of the state offense with the federal removable statute. Here, INA Section 101A43A. So this case is all about comparing the definition of California murder with a generic federal definition of murder. California law defines murder as the, quote, unlawful killing of a human being or a fetus with malice aforethought, end quote. Mr. Gomez Fernandez argued that the federal definition of murder at 18 U.S.C. section 1111A is incorporated into the aggravated felony murder provision at INA 101A43A, and under that definition, murder does not include a fetus, and so... The California state definition is broader than the federal removable statute. The Ninth Circuit agreed that the federal law specifically excludes an unborn fetus from the definition of human being and criminalizes the unlawful killing of an unborn fetus with a different federal statute. So, as Mr. Gomez Fernandez argued, California Penal Code Section 187A is indeed broader than INA Section 101A43A because it criminalizes more conduct. The analysis doesn't stop there, however, because also recall that when a statute is overbroad and has various alternatives, the court must determine whether the statute is divisible, and if so, the court can then apply the modified categorical approach to look at certain documents and identify the specific alternative underlying the conviction. Here, again, we're looking at California Penal Code Section 187A, and the alternatives are human being or a fetus and the Ninth Circuit held that the California statute is divisible as to whether the victim was a human being or fetus. In so holding, the Ninth Circuit noted that the statute uses the disjunctive or, but also recognized that this by itself is not determinative. The Ninth Circuit then peeked at the conviction documents and noted that the prosecution only charged Mr. Gomez Fernandez with killing a human being. Finally, And most convincingly, the Ninth Circuit looked to California state case law, which confirms that an individual cannot be convicted of killing both a human being and a fetus, but rather must be charged with two separate crimes, and the jury instructions, which require that the jury unanimously select that the victim is either a human being or a fetus. Because the California statute is divisible, the court was able to look into Mr. Gomez Fernandez's conviction documents and find that the victim was a human being, and therefore he has been convicted of an aggravated felony murder as defined in INA section 101A43A. Lastly, the Ninth Circuit also summarily rejected Mr. Gomez Fernandez's challenge to the BIA's denial of torture convention protection from Mexico. And so, Mr. Gomez-Hernandez will be removed. Here's Kevin. This case isn't good for anyone, including Kim, 
who had to summarize it on the podcast. I will say this, though. It was not a foregone conclusion that the definition of murder used at INA Section 101A43A would be the federal definition of murder as defined by 18 U.S.C. 1111A, which expressly excludes a fetus. As the Ninth Circuit notes, the Ninth Circuit could have also looked to the Model Penal Code, state murder laws as they existed in 1988, when Section 101A43A was passed, or scholarly articles to determine the federal definition of murder used at Section 101A43A. And that section doesn't even mention 18 U.S.C. 1111A at all. But Oyl conceded that the definition at 18 U.S.C. Section 1111A governs, and therefore waived any other arguments. Practitioners, if you ever have this issue, and no matter the state murder conviction, make sure to bind Oyl to its concession that murder under Section 101A43A is identical to 18 U.S.C. Section 1111A. And that is Gomez Fernandez v. Barr. Our last Ninth Circuit case for the week is Enriquez v. Barr, published on August 13, 2020. This one is about the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, and the legal definition of a, quote, admission under immigration law. Mr. Enriquez is a native and citizen of Mexico who entered the United States without inspection in 1997 at the age of four. In 2000, his mother self-petitioned under VAWA, filing a Form I-360 petition for special immigrant enlisting Mr. Enriquez as her dependent child. His mother was likely able to self-petition to adjust to permanent resident status, despite unlawfully entering the United States, because she was abused by her U.S. citizen or LPR spouse. As a derivative child of his mother's I-360 VAWA petition, Mr. Enriquez first received deferred action and work authorization, and many years later became an LPR. This is because an approved VAWA petition is only the first, and not the final step, to adjusting status pursuant to VAWA, kind of in the same way that an approved I-130 petition is only the first step to adjusting status. After eventually adjusting to LPR status, Mr. Enriquez was found to be removable from the United States for having been convicted of a CIMT. He applied for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA, which requires, among other things, that a non-citizen have been an LPR for at least five years and resided in the U.S. for seven years after having been admitted in any status. Now, Mr. Enriquez met the five-year LPR residence requirement. The issue in this case is whether he resided in the U.S. for at least seven years after being admitted in any status. Normally, this requirement would be met when, for example, an LPR held LPR status for at least seven years, or if a non-citizen first entered the U.S. on a non-immigrant visa, such as an L1A or a H-1B visa, resided in the U.S. for at least two years with that status, and thereafter adjusted to LPR status. But here, Mr. Enriquez only held LPR status for five years. Before that, he was in the U.S. pursuant to ICE's decision to defer action on his case due to his mother's approved VAWA petition. 
The question here is whether this deferred action, pursuant to an approved VAWA petition, constitutes an admission under immigration law. If it does, then Mr. Enriquez resided in the U.S. for over seven years after admission in any status, making him eligible for LPR cancellation of removal. Unfortunately for Mr. Enriquez, the Ninth Circuit held that it does not. Although both the BIA and the Ninth Circuit have expanded the definition of admission beyond the statutory definition of lawful entry after inspection and authorization by an immigration officer, the Ninth Circuit chose not to expand the definition further in this case. The Ninth Circuit reached this conclusion due to reasons of administrative law. The definition of admission is ambiguous. And under the Supreme Court's Chevron and Brandex decisions, the Ninth Circuit and all circuits must defer to the BIA's reasonable interpretation of ambiguous immigration terms. In its 2010 decision, Matter of Reza Murillo, the BIA held that the term admission does not include, quote, discretionary benefits given to non-citizens such as protection under the Family Unity Program. And in 2015, the Ninth Circuit deferred to this interpretation of admission, holding that receipt of work authorization or discretionary parole into the U.S. similarly don't qualify as admission under the BIA's definition. So here we are. Because deferred action pursuant to an approved follow petition is similar to protection under the Family Unity Program and the other contexts rejected by the BIA in the Ninth Circuit in the past, the Ninth Circuit held that an approved I-360 petition does not constitute an admission under immigration law. Mr. Enriquez will be removed despite initially receiving LPR status based on the abuse his mother suffered and despite having lived in the U.S. for over 20 years since the age of four. I'll turn you guys over now to Kevin. Judge Murguia, in concurrence, believes herself bound by prior Ninth Circuit precedent, but also believes that that precedent is wrong and inconsistent with the VAWA, which was supposed to, quote, expand immigration relief to undocumented immigrants who experience domestic abuse, end quote. And remember, under the Ninth Circuit's 2017 case Ramirez v. Brown, receipt of TPS does qualify as an admission, thereby making a non-citizen eligible to adjust status, or, if he or she has already adjusted status and then, like Mr. Enriquez, becomes removable, the receipt of TPS and then obtaining LPR status will have made that non-citizen eligible for LPR cancellation. And that is Enriquez v. Barr. Moving on from the Ninth Circuit, we've got Lopez Garcia v. Barr, published by the Seventh Circuit on August 11th, 2020. This is a short case about motions to reconsider and reopen to apply for asylum. Ms. Lopez Garcia is from Guatemala and received three threatening phone calls from individuals threatening to kill her and her children if she didn't hand over the money her husband sent her every month through his work in the U.S. The IJ and the BIA denied her asylum application. Ms. Lopez Garcia then moved the BIA to reconsider and separately to reopen proceedings, but the BIA denied both motions. On appeal to the Seventh Circuit, the Seventh Circuit first noted that courts review such motion denials under the highly deferential abuse of discretion standard. 
The Seventh Circuit denied the motion to reconsider, finding that Ms. Lopez-Garcia had simply, quote, rehashed the same arguments made before the IJ and the BIA. This is important because a motion to reconsider requires an error of factor law in the underlying decision, so rehashing arguments doesn't cut it. As to the motion to reopen to consider new country conditions evidence in Guatemala, the Seventh Circuit dismissed that too, stating that the evidence submitted shows that, quote, Guatemala continues to have widespread violence, end quote, but does not show a material change. In other words, conditions were bad then and they're bad now, and so there's no grounds to reopen. Nothing too novel in this case, so we'll just move right on along. And that is Lopez Garcia v. Barr. Our next case is another one from the Seventh Circuit, Salazar Marroquin v. Barr, published on August 13, 2020. This case is about sua sponte motions to reopen, where a non-citizen is ordered removed based on an incorrect charge of removability. Mr. Salazar Marroquin claims he entered the U.S. as a B-2 non-immigrant visitor and overstayed his visa, and he has documents to prove it. In 2011, he was ordered removed after he failed to appear for his first removal hearing. He then filed two motions to reopen, one of them just a few days after his removal order was issued, claiming he was confused as to the date of his hearing because the immigration court issued two notices of hearing with two different dates for the hearing. The motions were denied. Years later, he filed a third motion to reopen, this time based on the fact that he had been incorrectly charged and ordered removed as an alien present without admission or parole. Remember, he entered as a B-2 non-immigrant, meaning he was admitted. He also requested reopening so he could now adjust status through his U.S. citizen wife. He styled his motion as a sua sponte motion to reopen, requesting that the BIA exercise its exceptional authority to provide him another chance. The Seventh Circuit held that the BIA erred in denying the third motion to reopen. Even though circuit courts have very narrow ability to review BIA denials of sua sponte motions to reopen, the Seventh Circuit retains the ability to review the BIA's legal errors in denying a sua sponte motion to reopen including whether the board's stated rationale for denying such a motion indicates that it ignored evidence that the alien tendered in support of his request, end quote. And here, because the BIA completely ignored and misunderstood Mr. Salazar Marroquin's argument that he was never actually removable as charged, the Seventh Circuit held that the issue was reviewable and sent the case back for proper analysis. Congratulations, Mr. Salazar Marroquin, and good luck on remand. Here are two observations. First, and even though the Seventh Circuit provides some qualifying language, the implicit logic in this decision is that where an in absentia order of removal is premised on an incorrect charge of removability, Grounds exist for an IJ or the BIA to reopen proceedings using their sua sponte authority. So cite to this case where appropriate. There is also important information in this case regarding Pereira-type motions to terminate where the notice to appear lacks the date and time of a non-citizen's first hearing. 
In its 2019 Ortiz decision, the Seventh Circuit was the first circuit to identify a failure to include the date and time of a hearing in the NDA as a claims processing rule that could provide grounds to terminate proceedings if timely raised. In this case, the Seventh Circuit is also making clear, consistent with other circuits, that, as with all claims processing rules, in addition to timely asserting the violation, a claimant must show that the non-citizen was prejudiced by the violation. In this case, the BIA and then the Seventh Circuit rejected Mr. Salazar Marroquin's Pereira and Ortiz-based arguments because Mr. Salazar Marroquin conceded that he received the notices of hearing. The Seventh Circuit said that this meant that he could not show prejudice, even though he claimed that the two notices confused him, which seems prejudicial to me. So just what will count as prejudice, sufficient to succeed on a claims processing rule NTA challenge, remains a bit of a mystery, but I'm confident that some creative attorney will crack the code. And that is Salazar Marroquin v. Barr. Our next case is from the 8th Circuit, Fatima Fuentes v. Barr, published on August 12, 2020. This is a case about a gang and family-based asylum claim of a Salvadoran mother and son. Here are the facts. Ms. Fuentes applied for asylum with her son Emmanuel as a derivative of her asylum application, which means that if Ms. Fuentes gets asylum, her son will get asylum. Ms. Fuentes applied for asylum because MS-13, the gang who controlled her town, brandished their knives and threatened to harm her if she failed to meet their monetary demands, and asked about her uncle's whereabouts because they suspected her uncle of passing information on to members of Mata 18, a rival gang. Ms. Fuentes no longer wanted to succumb to the gang's extortion, but feared violent retribution. In immigration court, Ms. Fuentes claimed that she was, and will be, persecuted in El Salvador on account of her membership in three particular social groups, or PSGs. One, the Fuentes family because of her relationship with her uncle. Two, Salvadoran female head of households. And three, vulnerable Salvadoran females. The IJ denied her asylum and the BIA affirmed. According to the IJ, Ms. Fuentes failed to demonstrate the following things. That the harm she suffered rose to the level of persecution, that the harm was on account of a protected ground, and that the government was unable and unwilling to protect her. Ms. Fuentes' withholding and CAT applications were denied for similar reasons. The Eighth Circuit agreed with the IJ and the BIA that the motive for the gang's threats and targeting of Ms. Fuentes was not on account of her family, but because of her financial resources. The court specifically noted that Ms. Fuentes herself testified that her other family members were not similarly targeted. As to the other two social groups, the Eighth Circuit noted that it had rejected a similar particular social group last year in De Gavada v. Barr. The Eighth Circuit also held that Ms. Fuentes' testimony that she's afraid of the gangs, police, and the violence that plagues El Salvador is not enough to establish a claim of a well-founded fear of persecution in her home country. Tough loss, but as one of my law professors would always say when she lectured about cases with seemingly unfair results, there's a universe of nasty things for which the law does not provide. Here's Kevin with an observation. So as Kim alluded, not great for asylum seekers. But here's some lemonade. 
The Eighth Circuit did cite extensively to the BIA's 2017 decision, Matter of LEA, and not the Attorney General's narrowing of that same decision in 2019, stating that immediate family will constitute particular social groups so long as there is, quote, a nexus between the persecution suffered and the applicant's membership in that social group, end quote. Regardless of whether or not the Eighth Circuit intentionally ignored the Attorney General's 2019 modifications to Matter of LEA, or whether the Eighth Circuit simply wasn't made aware that the AG modified LEA to make family-based asylum claims more difficult to establish, this is now a case that all practitioners, and especially Eighth Circuit attorneys, can cite to in support of family-based PSGs and asylum claims. And that is Fatima Fuentes v. Barr. Our last case is Lingejoran v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit, my old circuit, on August 13, 2020. This case is about a non-citizen from Sri Lanka's application for asylum, withholding of removal, and protection under the Convention Against Torture, or CAT. Mr. Lingejoran is from Sri Lanka and is an ethnic Tamil. Following the civil war between the Sri Lankan army and the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, or LTTE, or Tamil Tigers, the army abducted Mr. Lingajaran's father and Mr. Lingajaran himself, twice interrogating and beating Mr. Lingajaran, accusing him of being with the Tamil Tigers. His father was never seen again. Mr. Lingajaran was forced to live in a camp, but escaped for France in 2009. He applied for asylum in France, but his application was denied when he didn't show up to his immigration interview. He came to the U.S. and learned that the Sri Lankan government intended to detain him if he returned. To obtain relief from deportation to Sri Lanka, Mr. Lingajaran filed for asylum and claimed that a pattern and practice of persecution exists in Sri Lanka against Tamils by the Sri Lankan government. Under our immigration laws, an applicant for asylum who shows that there is a pattern or practice of persecution against his entire ethnicity group need not show that his life is personally at risk just that he's a member of that group. However, the IJ and the BIA denied his claims. The 11th Circuit agreed. It first held that the IJ and the BIA correctly concluded that Mr. Lingajaran's Tamil ethnicity, or another protected ground under immigration law, was not at least one central reason for the harm he suffered and feared, but rather because of the investigation into his involvement with the Tamil Tigers. So even though everyone agrees that Mr. Lingajaran has a legitimate fear of the Sri Lankan government and army, he doesn't fear those entities for the right reasons under immigration law to qualify for asylum. The 11th also affirmed a variety of alternative findings. It held that Mr. Lingajaran failed to meet his evidentiary burden and that, while Tamils were treated horrendously during the Civil War, the country condition evidence shows that there does not exist a pattern or practice of persecution against them today. The 11th Circuit then kind of went out of its way to make clear that like the 1st, 3rd, and 7th Circuits, it will not adopt the 9th Circuit's, quote, disfavored group test. Under that test, asylum applicants are eligible for relief if they establish membership in a group that is, quote, disfavored, end quote, and they have, quote, an individualized risk of being singled out for persecution, end quote. 
The 11th Circuit said that this test conflicts with the immigration statute and regulations. Finally, the 11th Circuit denied the CAT claims, holding that the evidence shows that the Sri Lankan government is attempting to reconcile with Tamils following the civil war. All in all, this is a very fact-specific and deferential decision to the IJ and BIA, without much to gain for non-citizens. But here's Kevin with one note. There appears to be a bit of an unresolved split within the 11th Circuit of the nexus requirement under asylum law. Judge Wilson, in concurrence, agrees with Judge Jordan from a prior decision and would hold, as many other circuits do, that a protected ground need only be one of the many reasons for persecution to qualify a non-citizen for asylum. The majority in this decision, in contrast, agrees with Judge Grant's comments in that same prior decision, that a protected ground must be the primary reason for persecution for a non-citizen to qualify for asylum. Perhaps the issue will be resolved soon. And 11th Circuit practitioners, take note if Judge Jordan and Judge Wilson are on your panel. You may just make some good law. And that is Lingajaran v. U.S. Attorney General. Before I turn you over to Kevin and his outro, I want to take the time to say how fun it's been to join you all for the last couple episodes of Immigration Review. After three years working for immigration judges, it's been a real treat to be able to think like an advocate these two weeks. Thank you for listening in, and I hope to meet all of you in the future, especially those in San Diego. And that is Kim Cruz signing off. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Immigration Review.